So I was just taking pictures of the food and I would post them on Instagram. I started a blog, like an actual website a couple months later where I would catalog all the recipes that I was posting on my Instagram and my Facebook. One of the women who followed me, she was the owner of a very large vegan account called Best of Vegan. She also happened to be a poet and a writer. And when she started to read my writing, she was like, wow, you are very talented. And she was at that time working with a literary agent with her own book deal. And as a just incredible act of generosity, she introduced me to her lit agent. And I worked with that lit agent. And I think within a year, I had a book deal with Random House, Penguin, Penguin Random House. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beaten down? Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Only a year after joining social media, Joanne Molinaro would become a New York Times bestseller for the Korean vegan cookbook. But when she was crying in her car, stressed about her job, her divorce, and future, this eventual reality seemed like a fantasy. Now, Joanne is one of the leading voices in the cooking world with 3 million followers on TikTok, nearly 1 million YouTube subscribers, and more than 600,000 Instagram followers. Under her slogan, I veganize Korean food, I Koreanize everything else, Joanne explains how to make vegan kimchi and unfuck upable pho, all while sharing her intersectional identity as a Korean American woman and her family's refugee experience. But let's take this back before she became a successful blogger, content creator, writer, and attorney. Let's start this story generations before in North Korea. I kind of actually want to go to the story before the story. Um, and talk a little bit about your parents' history um, and where they were before they were in the U.S. Well, my parents were both born in what is now known as North Korea. It was not known as North Korea when my father was born, which was probably right after World War II. The 38th parallel had just been kind of hurriedly drawn as part of the various uh, treaties that were entered into by the parties of World War II. My mother was born at the very beginning of the Korean War. So at that time, it's possible that North Korea technically existed when she was born. Either way, the region that they were born in is now what we know as North Korea. And they both had to flee very quickly, shortly after they were born into the southern region of the peninsula for various reasons. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why they had to flee at that time? Because like, I mean, that might be a very obvious question now, but I'm like wondering like in, in their psyche, like what was what was going on in the country that they were like, we gotta get out of here. My grandfather left South Korea or what is now known as South, South Korea. He you know, had a pretty cushy life. He lived with his you know, father and they were very well off. But my grandfather was very angry with his father for cheating on his mom and, uh, you know, believed that his father was responsible for his mother's suicide. And when he was 13 years old, he ran away from home and he walked through the mountains and arrived at what is now known as North Korea. 
as a 13, 14, 15 year old and finally determined that he could utilize the very expensive education that he had to sign up for the Japanese police force. He was really concerned about making money. And part of that was because he had just gotten married and he was expecting a son and or he was expecting a baby who would eventually be a son, my father. So he signed up for the Japanese police force, made a very good living. But by the time World War II ended and Japanese occupation was, you know, uh, terminated, if you will, everyone was now in the mood to hunt down anyone who had worked for the Japanese government. And so my grandfather essentially had a target on his back and had to flee his homeland as quickly as possible before he was killed. So right before the end of World War II, he hopped into a pickup truck that took him to back to the southern region of the peninsula, back to his father's home, the one that he had left when he was 13, leaving behind my grandmother and his infant son. And of course, she wasn't going to survive very long on her own. And eventually she found a way past the 38th parallel to her husband and was reunited. What was different about your mother's? Uh, story about leaving. So my mother's, yeah, my mother's story, she was born a few years later, uh, at the very beginning of the Korean War. And she lived in Ongjin, which was a North Korean province, I believe. And the beginning of the Korean War is thought to have, you know, started in Ongjin. So her village was literally under attack. So she physically, they had to evacuate their village, otherwise they would have been killed. So her parents, my grandparents, scooped her up and my aunt, her older sister, up. And they were told by, actually, I think, U.S. soldiers who were there, if you want to get to safety, you got to head towards the Yellow Sea. There will be a ship there that will take you to the southern region of the peninsula where you will be safe. So they just scooped up their babies. They grabbed whatever food they could get. And like everybody else in the village, they started walking towards the Yellow Sea. And of course, in my mind, I thought, oh, sure. And when my mom was telling me the story, well, maybe it took 24 hours to get there. No, it took two weeks to get to the Yellow Sea on foot. And so you can imagine my grandparents having two infants, you know, swaddled to their backs, food running out very, very quickly, no real sense of what safety even looks like, whether they're going to reach it. And eventually they do arrive at the Yellow Sea and there was a ship waiting for them to take them to safety. But by that time, all the food was gone. Their daughter, my mother, was starving to death and she was screaming at the top of her lungs because she was so, so hungry. And I think at the time it wasn't uncommon to see mercy killings of infants because of the just sheer chaos of the situation and the desperation. And so they got onto this ship and they determined that they would slip my mother overboard as a mercy killing because they didn't know what else to do. And I think in trying to understand what they were going through, what they were thinking, like how did they arrive at this decision Part of it is because they didn't speak English and they had no idea what was happening. They just kind of followed the herd, got onto the ship. They had no idea where it would take them. They had no idea how long it would take them to get there. They didn't see any food on board, at least not immediately. So in their minds, 
there was no definite end to their daughter's suffering. And so they assumed that the best thing they could do for her was to create an end of that suffering. They didn't want anyone to see what they were going to do, which was to drown their baby. And they thought, oh, there aren't a lot of people up there. So they get over to the railing and they're crying and they're very emotional. And of course, there's a lot of struggle and second, third, fourth, fifth, triple guessing, all of those things. And they're about to slip my mom overboard when a couple of GIs, USGIs, they see, oh, there's some commotion over there by the railing. And that family looks like they're in danger. And so the GIs come on over. And of course, they're speaking English. My grandparents don't understand a word that they're saying. But eventually, the GIs kind of figure out, okay, this baby is hungry. And so one of them reaches into his pocket, pulls out a Hershey bar, and hands it to my mother. And Ultimately, it was that Hershey bar that saved her life because in doing that, my grandparents realized, okay, I think we're going to be okay. I was wondering if maybe you could lead me up to um, what you understood about your parents um, and maybe how their their struggles informed your childhood. Because I imagine when you were a kid, you probably didn't really know anything about, you know, the the circumstances they came from. The trauma that war inflicts on children, even if they're not aware of it, like they're not conscious of it, it's almost it's a lifetime trauma. It lasts with them. And you're correct. I think it certainly informed their parenting of me. With my father, when his father, my grandfather, arrived back in South Korea with the wealthy family that he had run away from when he was 13. He was not welcomed back as the prodigal son. He was essentially punished for running away to begin with. His father gave him the worst piece of land to farm on, to make a living for himself. And he was basically unable to grow anything on this plot of land. It was kind of like a joke, like, oh, here, try try this. And as a result of that, even though they came from a you know fairly well-to-do family, my father's family, my grandfather was very poor. And my father remembers his childhood as one of extreme poverty and kind of always being just on the edge of starving, like always not having enough food. So one of the things that he told me that I will never forget was that his father would literally count out the number of beans he was allotted for each day. Like this is the number of beans that you get to eat today for all of the different siblings. And so that was his childhood was growing up and figuring out, okay, how, you know, how many beans do I get to eat today? My grandfather, the suicide that he had to witness of his mother, my great grandmother had a a very lasting impact on his own mental health or lack thereof. And as a result of that, he was very abusive to my father. So my father recalls many, many times being punished for totally no reason. Like he doesn't know why his father would punish him. My father had a very, very difficult childhood. But one of the things that I love about his description of his childhood is he said, 
even though we were so poor, we still had fun. And that is really one of the most beautiful things about my dad's story is that notwithstanding unimaginable trauma, he still has the resiliency to find beauty in that childhood. My mom's very similar in that notwithstanding the you know trauma that she had to go through with starvation, homelessness, all of that, she still finds moments from her childhood that she attributes to being so intensely beautiful and nostalgic. Is that like an internal optimism that you think they had as a character trait? Or is that, do you think there's something to survive they had to have to move through those difficult times? And then like also like, did that show up in the parenting? I think that you're right on the money with regard to survival instinct. Like that is incredibly important. That said, I think you and I can both agree that there are people who will undergo similar traumas and not have the kind of outlook on life that my parents did, or they will repeat the mistakes of their parents. And, and my parents certainly didn't. They, they did never abused me or anything like that. Can you tell me about some of your early memories um, growing up with your parents? Sure. So my father did serve in the Korean army. That's mandatory. But he also did that because my grandmother ran out of money. She was not a good businesswoman, though she really tried very hard. And eventually, in order to pay for school, he did serve in the ROK army during the Vietnam War. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the Vietnam War. At the end of the day, my father's family was starving to death and he did whatever he could to bring in money for the family. And that's ultimately what he did. As a result of that, he was able to go to Yonsei University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in South Korea. He obtained a degree, but he had always been lured by the American dream. Like he just was so fascinated with the United States. And uh, my mother at that time, they had already met and I think they'd already gotten married. She also was very keen on going to the United States and had been given an opportunity to go in on a visa program because there was a nurse nursing shortage in the U.S. at that time. And so she went to the U.S. first. She studied for her boards and passed them and, and got a nursing job. And ultimately, my father's fascination with the U.S. was allowed to really blossom because then he could get in on her visa. And, you know, they started a life here. My father started work as an x-ray technician, but ultimately got a job at the U.S. Postal Service. So that was actually the job that he had while my mom worked, as you said, in the ER. And... So we we set up shop, if you will, in Chicago, actually in, a, in Skokie, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And, you know, they actually never really voiced any over opinions about the U.S. And part of that was because there was a serious cultural rift between me and my parents, which is very typical in children of immigrants with my father. Even though his English is really good, he had a very thick accent. And so there was a bit of a language barrier as well. So they never really described the U.S. I think looking back based upon my experience with my parents and what I now know about them, I think that they were sort of bedazzled, if you will, by the United States. I mean, think about it. We had a whole house with a backyard 
I mean, that's just unheard of in their lifetime. And they were able to do that almost immediately upon arriving to the United States. And so we were able to build a, a little garden in our backyard. My grandmother was able to farm to her heart's content with good soil, not the kind that my father had been or my grandfather had been given when he you know, got back to South Korea. I mean, so in many ways, they were living a life that I don't think they could have even dreamt of when they were back in Korea. And again, I can now say in hindsight, they are so immensely grateful for the opportunities that they've received to build this sort of life here in the U.S. I remember when I was a little girl, my mom was obsessed with me doing well in school. Now, that's very typical of especially of a Korean immigrant family because scholarship is just one of the most important values in Korea. So that was not surprising. But I remember once when we were in second grade, when I was in second grade, when we were learning how to write our A's and our B's and our C's. And you know how you get those those sheets of paper with the three dotted lines. Actually, I don't know if kids actually do this yeah. anymore, but there's three dotted yeah, 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 the three yeah. dotted lines. And, you know, you had to make sure that the T was in the middle line, you know, and you got the little curl at the end and things like that. And I remember my eyes, I was dotting them beneath that middle line of that sheet of paper. And she was worried that this was somehow give me away as an immigrant child. So she wrote a note to my teacher. Joanne is not dotting her eyes correctly. Please attend to that. So this is the level of precision that my mom had when it came to making sure that my English and my Americanism was at par, right? But on the other hand, there were always other things that she was not willing to compromise on. For example, our food. We never got to eat American food. Like it was very, very rare that we got to eat McDonald's or spaghetti or things like that. We always had Korean food. And she, you know, sent me to Korean school because she didn't want me to forget Korean. Wasn't very successful, but she still tried. So there were other aspects of Korean culture that she did make attempts to retain, but it was very hard to have my feet in both worlds at the same time. Could you maybe tell me a little bit more about um, how like your relationship with food developed? Yeah. Food always played a very interesting role in my life. On the one hand, certainly in my family, because basically everyone in my family had gone through so much starvation, you know, at, at certain points in their life, food was a very important thing. Like everything really revolved around the ability to provide food for the family, whether it was through money or growing our own food in our backyard. And as is the case in many immigrant families, food was also a way of communicating love, right? So as you said, a lot of my mother's sort of weird, maybe potentially dysfunctional parenting techniques, that was an expression of a sort of distorted sense of love, one that had become distorted because of the trauma that she experienced. But food was always such a simple way of saying, I love you, right? Unfortunately, though... Again, a very patriarchal society that Korea is, women have to look a certain way in order to be valued. Their value really at that time was about making babies and looking beautiful. 
And in Korea, looking beautiful meant you had to be very, very thin. And when I was born, I clearly was born with genes that did not fit that mold. There are two kinds of women in my family. Some of them look like my mom, who's, you know, 87 pounds. And some of them look like my aunts who are just rounder and a little bit bustier, right? And I fell into that latter category. As a result, even though there was always this like, oh, eat this and eat this. I made this for you because they were showing me their love. There was always, as long as I can remember, someone telling me, you need to lose a little weight. And I remember this from when I was like maybe six or seven years old. You're too fat. You're too chubby. You're too round. How do you even internalize that as a kid? Like, what do you, what do you do or say to that? You accept it because you think that they're correct. And I remember when I was like six years, I must've been like six or seven years old. I was really little because I was still bathing with my mom. I mean, obviously like I wasn't like 15 when I was doing that. I was really, really little girl. And I was in the bathtub with my mom. And there's this thing that in Korean culture, when you take a bath or you take a shower, it's called themidya, which means to like exfoliate your skin. I think in Western culture, exfoliation is like sort of a spa thing. In Korean culture, you do that every time you go into the bath and you take a shower, you exfoliate your dead, your dead skin. And my mom was literally like rubbing away all my dead skin and exfoliating me with these Korean, like you may have seen it. Like when you go to a Korean spa, like they literally rub you with an inch of your life and you come out looking raw. Well, that's my, my mom was doing that to me. And at the end, she was like, oh, you must have lost 10 pounds from all the dead skin that I was able to rub off. And she was joking. And I, at first I laughed, but then I remember feeling so hopeful. Oh, maybe I did lose some weight because at that time I had already adopted this idea that this was like a big goal of my life. Like I always needed to be losing weight. And again, I must've been only like six or seven years old. And I remember looking at my mom at, at first laughing, but then asking her very seriously, do you really think I lost some weight from this? But you know, to your question, how does a child process that? We don't have the tools and the vocabulary to reject that at that time. So you do internalize it and you start feeling pretty much at all times like you're inadequate. You're not ever going to be good enough. Or when you were in college, was there a expansion of your freedom um, where you could maybe embody a little bit more of how you wanted to present in the world? In college, partly because of that freedom that you allude to, all of a sudden I was able to eat hamburgers and hot dogs and French fries and pizza like every single day after a lifetime of being forced to eat Korean food. Right. And so in the beginning, I had like an endless buffet of American food. So naturally I gained 35 pounds during that first semester in college. And that was a really serious problem for my family. I think I probably was home for my birthday and I was much larger than I'd ever been in my life. We went to Baker Square for my birthday dinner and I wanted to order a slice of pie as my birthday cake, right? And I remember when the slice of pie arrived with a candle on it, my father said, you know, Joanne, you're really big. You probably shouldn't eat that. And I remember 
pushing that pie away from me and just feeling so humiliated that my father would say that out loud at my birthday dinner in front of my whole family. And I think that intense level of shame that I felt at at that moment, I think a bit of that resides in me every time I put food into my mouth. I would love to go to the transition between college and going to study law and like how you were thinking that like you wanted to be a lawyer and do some lawyering. Yeah. So I never wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) I, I basically chose my profession in law mostly out of panic. I started college in 1997 when I graduated from high school. And shortly upon starting college, I met who the man who would eventually be my first husband. And he was my first love. My parents didn't let me date until I got into college. So I never really experienced a relationship before. And, you know, I'm sure Sam, you can remember your first love, like it's completely bottomless. Like you just fall into it. And that's what happened to me. Unfortunately, he left after one semester in school. And so he went, you know, he graduated. So he went back to Chicago. So literally all I cared about was graduating as quickly as humanly possible so that I could be in Chicago too with my boyfriend. I just missed him so much. And I spent as much time in Chicago as I could. I luckily did well enough in high school that I actually started college as a sophomore, something I didn't realize until my first semester. And I was like, oh, I guess the school considers me a sophomore. Well, I might as well take advantage of this and graduate in just three years instead of four. So that's what I did. I graduated in three years. I thought that I was so smart and I saved all this money from my parents and I get to leave early. But the, you know, the problem with that is I had no plan. I could have probably used another year to figure out what I wanted to do with my future. So I graduated from college with no job. I'm in Chicago. I'm looking through the classifieds to find a job. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with an English degree, you know? And I, you know, become a resume writer because I was like, well, it's a writer of some sort. And through the process of writing everyone else's resumes, I was really forced to confront what is my future? And I was looking at everybody else and what they had done with their careers. And eventually I was assigned the task of writing the resume of a lawyer. And I looked at her resume and I was like, yeah, I I could do this. Maybe I could do this. My mom always told me that I was disobedient and rebellious enough to be a lawyer. So maybe that's what I should do. And choosing a career, one that didn't involve medicine because I was afraid of blood or business because I hated selling things was very soothing to me because I was lacking so much structure at that time. And the idea of going back to school with a very definite end and a very definite career path was exactly what I wanted to soothe my anxiety. So I always tell people I picked law mostly because I was anxious and panicked about my future and it offered a really easy out. And at that time, like, where were things with your your boyfriend? Because you were now in Chicago, right? So things with my boyfriend were right on path. Like, we were right on trajectory. You know, we were headed towards 
you know, becoming engaged and certainly getting into law school and particularly the ones that I got into was a big part of that plan because, you know, I got into the University of Chicago and Northwestern, which are the only two law schools I applied to. I certainly wasn't going to go anywhere outside of Chicago. I'd already done that with Urbana. So I stayed in Chicago and because those schools were so good, I knew that I would very likely get a very nice job upon graduation, which would set the future up for both of us, me and my boyfriend, so that we could get married, buy a house, do the whole suburban thing. Yeah. And in this like description of it, it doesn't sound like you are necessarily passionate about law. It sounds like law is maybe going to give you the life that you want sometime in the future. Um, so when you were actually in law school studying, uh, did you have realizations about what this career actually looked like and what you felt about it. I wasn't passionate about it, but I will say I was pleasantly surprised when I got into law school, how naturally I sort of enjoyed it. I think in that respect, I was sort of lucky. Once I passed the bar, I mean, I just remember that night, like, you know, we get, we get our results through, I think like looking on the website to find your number, to see if you're on the list. And I just remember I stayed up till three in the morning, just refresh, 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 just waiting for those results and, and really feeling like my whole life comes down to this one moment, you know, on this list. And, you know, if I don't get this, then I'm not going to get married and everything's going to go horrible. And my parents will be so embarrassed of me. Like, what am I going to do? And, and then finally I, I hit refresh and I, I scroll through the list and I said, that's my number. And I remember, you know, it was three in the morning. So my parents were still asleep, but I knew they wanted to know. So I went to their bedroom door and I knocked very quietly, knock, knock, knock. And I opened it and I just whispered, I passed. And my parents just jumped out of like, I've never seen my father. He literally jumped out of bed. He was dancing around the living room. Before I knew it, he was calling everyone in Korea to say, my daughter just passed the bar exam. She's a lawyer now. And it was just such a joyous moment. And I remember feeling like, I'm very happy. Very, very happy. Yeah. And also like, this is the, the I feel like the dream for any like immigrant parents like like to to have your child especially like going from the situation they were in become a lawyer like like you've reached the pinnacle of society it's like all all of the work that they've put in it's it, it was it, and all the work you put in it's like oh like it's worth it i i can't imagine like how proud they must have been of you 100 percent hundred percent. So after that, that like that, that moment of passing, what comes next? That first year at the firm was the hardest year of my career. I, I had been so used to accolades and merit and achievement. People telling me you're, you're doing so good. You're doing so well. You don't get any of that, that first year, uh, as a lawyer, uh, as a, an associate in a large law firm. Meanwhile, I was headed towards a wedding. I was going to get married to my fiance. And, you know, and we haven't talked a lot about that relationship. First loves are magical, but they can also be deceptively toxic. What was happening? My ex-husband, he, he had also suffered a lot of trauma. I think that his own father wasn't very kind to him. And as a result, 
he patterned his coping in a way that was unhealthy, mostly by lashing out at people. And, you know, we had so many moments, both of us crying because we wanted so badly to make it work because we were just so in love with each other. But there was just this thing where for whatever reason, I pushed the wrong buttons and, and then this other part of him was activated and he just hurt me like so much. When wasn't it strong enough? When did it come to a head? So this moment, I will never forget. My husband had lost his job and he wasn't able to find employment for about three years. And it was really hard for me to work all day at the firm and come home and he didn't have a job. And, you know, like he was depressed. He was really depressed because of that. And I was trying my best to be supportive. And I remember we were on a walk in this park and we were walking loops around the park. And I kind of tentatively asked him again, so have you thought about your job? And of course we started talking. And I remember by the second loop, he was yelling at me and he was calling me names. And it just turned into the same pattern as it always had. And so I was like, you know what, let's just go home because he was raising his voice and there are people around and I didn't like that. So we get back into the car and by the time we get into the car, he is full on screaming at me. And I remember I got out of the car and I start walking it vaguely like in the direction of our house. And all of a sudden I hear him honking at me with his car and he rolls down the window and he says, get back in the car, you bitch. You think you could do this to me? You can't do this to me. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And I remember there was this family, a man with his two daughters and he's staring at me like, I feel so sorry for you that you have to deal with this. And I also remember thinking, oh, he must think what is wrong with this woman? And he had these two daughters who were on a bicycle with him. And he, I just think like, oh, he must be thinking, I'll never let my daughters turn into this weak, weak woman. And I just was so embarrassed. And I got back in the car because I didn't want him to shame me any further in front of all these people. And I think that was the moment that I realized like I could not live this sham anymore. So going to making that change, like when, how do you call things off? I think in my head, I always said to myself, like, as long as he never physically hurts me, like I can do it. Like I can be strong on it. Everything else I will take. But as long as he doesn't physically hurt me and he was drinking really badly one night and we got into a really big fight because he felt like I had embarrassed him in front of my family by interrupting him while he was talking over dinner. And it was like one or two in the morning and you know, things kind of started spiraling out of control. I think partly because he'd been drinking a lot and he threatened to 
start driving. Like he wanted to leave the house in the car. And I was like, you cannot leave the house in this condition in the car. Like, I'm not going to let you do that. But again, he took that as me trying to control him. And I was like, no, I'm not trying to control you. Like you could do whatever you want, but you're not driving in this condition at one in the morning. And he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to. And finally, I just was like, I don't know what else to do. So I picked up the phone, a cell phone. And I was like, I'm calling your mother. So I have the phone in my hand and he's staring at me and he finally just wept, you know, across my head because he's trying to dislodge the phone. And, you know, it was like such a jarring thing because he'd never like ever done anything like that to me. So I remember I picked up my dog, my Daisy girl, and I ran to my parents' house again. It was like three in the morning by that time. And I, you know, was barefoot. I just like barely managed to get out the door because he was trying to claw me back in the house. And I ran out the door. I went to my parents' house and I got, as soon as my mom opened the door, I said, I'm getting a divorce. After that point, it was like a straight road. Like I am out. I, you know, hired a therapist. I came up with a spreadsheet. I had like a multi-step plan to exit the relationship, you know, and one of the milestones was telling him we're done. How did he respond to that? It, it was horrible. Uh, you know, I honestly say that divorcing him was the hardest thing I ever did because there was such a large part of me that didn't want to. And even after the divorce, like after I left him, I mean, I would say like a year's worth of therapy was my therapist convincing me not to go back to him because I really wanted to. I think like part of breaking up with someone ending a, a marriage that was that's that, that was so formative to your identity is also partly reinventing yourself. Did you make an effort to create that like identity and in what ways did you try to build yourself up after like such a traumatic time period? I think that I did it in very small ways at first. I went back to the things that I remembered loving before I met him the thing with any kind of codependent relationship, which I think it truly was at the end of the day, was that I sacrificed everything for him. I gave up everything for our marriage, including my hobbies. So there was this wonderful process that started, however like horrible and painful it was. I was also doing things like, you know what? The first thing that I bought with my first year bonus at the firm was a piano. Maybe I should start playing that piano again, or maybe I should start taking voice lessons again, or maybe I should start going to the gym again, which is something that I'd really loved doing before. I started to go to a hair salon, get my hair done every once in a while. So they were like these small little things that in retrospect were kind of like acts of defiance. Like I'm not going to be this woman that just gives up everything that she was. I want to rediscover who I am. The biggest thing that I did though was to start writing. I started a writing blog. I was writing in that blog even while we were married, but Certainly once we separated, that writing blog became sort of a cornerstone of my, what you call reinvention. And it was a big part of finding my voice. And I don't mean that in just the written word sense. I mean that in the direction that I needed to author in my own path. What were you writing about? 
I was writing a lot about the divorce. I was writing about these things that were so cataclysmic in my life at the time. I was writing about love. I was writing about what does love even mean? Uh, you know, so it was kind of like, I thought that we were going to be together forever. But these are the things that I was writing about. I was doing it anonymously. And, you know, I felt some sort of freedom in that, like nobody really knew who I was. So it was sort of like a little journal for me, but it was one that challenged me to become stronger inter internally while also giving me a chance to flex my creative muscles. When do you start getting into dating again? And how do you even think about that? <laughs> After I left my ex-husband, like there was a lot of little dating, like I call, like, you know, seeing, seeing men, you know, not ever really having a relationship with any of them. But I think about a few months after my divorce was when I, f I started dating online. I had like lots of different online dating profiles. So it was fun. It was eye-opening, but it was a lot of work for me because I was working full-time. I was senior counsel on the cusp of making partner. So I was working really, really hard. And at the time, I think I remember feeling like this is like a second job. Like I got to put on makeup and like get clothes and like do and like put on a face and stuff like that. And, you know, online dating comes with its own sort of flaws, which is like this guy doesn't look anything like he said he does <laughs> or like this person is so boring and I don't want to be here anymore. And like, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, like definitely the ups and downs. Um, but eventually you do find someone. Uh, and can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I met Anthony, my current husband, through OkCupid. And his DM to me was filtered. And so like you, it's just kind of like Instagram now where you have your primary inbox and then you have the requested messages inbox. So he yeah. was in my requested messages inbox. I think he was too old. Like he's seven years older than me. And so, but like every once in a while, I used to go through those when I was bored and I went through them and I saw his message to me and I went onto his profile and I found out he was a classical pianist, which I found very intriguing. And then I went through some of his photos and I was like, oh, he's also an athlete and a very, very fit one. So I was like, that's a very interesting combination. And I responded to his message and you know, he was one of those guys, which I appreciate, who didn't like dilly dally in the messages, like right after I responded, he's like, hey, would you like to meet for coffee? And I felt like that was a really good sign. Like, OK, he's not catfishing me. He's not weird. Like he's like a normal person who wants to just have a normal beginning of a potential relationship. And so we met for coffee. Lead me up to when you started your next blog and how maybe he was supportive of that. Yeah. So I started the Korean vegan in 2016, basically because he told me to. <laughs> so he went vegan in 2016. I really didn't want to go vegan because I thought he was basically asking me to become a white person. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm <laughs> Korean. So no, I can't. But I, I eventually kind of caved and was like, fine, I'll try it. And he was so happy that I joined him. He would constantly praise me every time I made anything for us, you know, that was vegan. He's like, oh my God, that was the best thing I ever ate. And one day I had made him chocolate cake 
And he was like, that cake was so delicious. You're the Korean vegan. You should start a YouTube channel that's called the Korean vegan where you just share your recipes. And I was like, all right. And I literally <laughs> that same day, I started a YouTube channel and an Instagram account and a Facebook called the Korean vegan. What did you post there initially? So I was just taking pictures of the food and I would post them on Instagram. I started a blog, like an actual website a couple months later where I would catalog all the recipes that I was posting on my Instagram and my Facebook. And yeah, that was really the beginning. And of course he was supportive. It was self-serving. He wanted me to continue <laughs> making him vegan food. <laughs> so, delicious yeah. vegan food, I exactly. imagine. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So how how long was it before you started to see like any kind of uh, response online from what you were putting out? In I would say in 2016, after the election here in the United States, that was a very difficult time for me personally. It was very hard on my relationship with Anthony because we were an interracial couple and I felt like he really didn't understand where I stood as a minority in the United States and how I felt as a result of that election. And I was really searching for a way to channel some of my grief, I guess, and my anger in a way that was constructive. And I'm a problem solver. I've always been a problem solver. And I felt like the best way to make myself feel better was to contribute something to this problem. And I was like, well, I have 10,000 followers on Instagram. Maybe I can start sharing a little bit more about what it's like to be an immigrant family in case there are people who are so ignorant to that. That's why they're contributing to this division. Really quick to interject, 10,000 followers on Instagram is no small feat. Yeah. So by in a year, I had managed to cobble together 10,000 followers, which is great. I think part of that just speaks to kind of the supportiveness of the vegan community. Like they, they are loyal to their own. And I think that yeah. has a lot to do with it. I think that in 2017, when I started to do what I kind of planned to do, which is to start sharing more writing and stories about my family, then things took like a, a very sharp turn. And by that, what I mean is not only was my content very different from basically anything else that people were doing on Instagram, one of the women who followed me, she was the owner of a very large vegan account called Best of Vegan. I don't know how many it had, probably close to a million followers at that time. She also happened to be a poet and a writer. And when she started to read my writing, she was like, wow, you are very talented. And she was at that time working with a literary agent with her own book deal. And as a just incredible act of generosity, she introduced me to her lit agent and basically was like, I think you should write a book. I really want to read whatever book you write. So please write a book. And I worked with that lit agent. And I think within a year, I had a book deal with Random House, Penguin, Penguin Random House. Wow. And you're like also working. Yes. As a lawyer. I was very good at keeping everything separated. Like, it's not like my colleagues really knew what I was doing on Instagram. And I didn't really talk a lot about my lawyer life on my social media platforms because I was scared. I didn't want my employer to find out and then have a problem with it. So I kept things very separated. I will say with the book, both my agent and my publisher were very understanding that I had a full-time and quite stressful career. So they made it very clear, like, do you 
figure it out. We don't, we're not going to make you write this book in three months or something like that. They gave me plenty of time to do it. So in that regard, I was very fortunate that I had people around me who were very understanding of the fact that I was trying to straddle two worlds at the same time. So maybe the the next stop we can go to is, is how your, uh, uh, ability to create, to create videos, um, changed during the pandemic. I read this article in the New York Times about how the kids from TikTok and BTS Army like single-handedly disrupted some Tulsa rally or something like that. And I was like, these kids are amazing. <laughs> like, what is going on on TikTok? Like, what is this thing, you know? And I just felt such a rush of not inspiration, but just something electrifying about that whole thing. And so I was like, I got to see this firsthand. Like, I don't want to keep reading about it in the paper or seeing like clips of it on Instagram. Like I want to join TikTok just to watch what's happening. And so I started TikTok really just as a consumer. Like I just wanted to see like from the sidelines, like all the stuff that was happening. And then I participated here and there with my own political speech. And then I remember I saw a couple of food videos. And I also remember that my agent had mentioned to me, you know, your publisher is going to want you to do some social media growth around, you know, before the book is out. You just something to think about. I had lodged that little idea in my head. And I was like, well, I mean, I got, you know, I think at the time I had like 45,000 followers on Instagram or something like that. You know, maybe I should post a couple of food videos or something. I can do that. So I remember I had this like really crappy iPhone at the time and I just threw it up against the wall. I was chopping up some potatoes for dinner, you know, throw them into the stove. I mean, like the lighting is horrible and you can hear my husband. He's playing piano in the background because he's a piano teacher and he's yelling at his student while playing some crazy Chopin thing. And I didn't know how to use TikTok at the time. So you can see like all of my texts, they like overlap with one another. Like it was like really ugly, but I posted it and I like woke up and it had like 600,000 views. And I was like, oh my God, I just remember feeling like at once, like, really excited, but also terrified. Like, I was like, I can't believe that so many eyeballs are on me right now. Like, it's really kind of scary. Where did you feel like your next move was? I remember in November of 2020, my phone was ringing off the hook at the office. And it was partly for two reasons. Number one, a new case had just been filed under Chapter 11. It was a crypto case. And I was one of the few persons in the country who had expertise in both crypto and bankruptcy. And I had written quite extensively on it. And the other reason my phone was ringing off the hook was I was writing an op-ed for The Atlantic. So that promise I'd made to just post food content, I quickly gave up on that and and went back to posting very political legal content. And some of it had gotten attention, you know, it, it received attention from, you know, George Conway and, and many other very famous legal Twitter, you know, people. And as a result of that, I was invited to write this op-ed. And this was all happening around the same time. And I just remember thinking to myself, it is not possible for me to do both of these things as well as I can. It's I'm only one person and I have now reached that point where I need to choose one. It's that's a massive switch. It would have been a massive switch, but I think there was something again that kind of helped me that case that I mentioned, the one where 
Again, a crypto case had filed under Chapter 11. I really wanted that case. A lot of individual holders of crypto or hodlers, if you will, they were calling me to be their lawyers, but I wanted to be the lawyer for the committee, which is a big, big you know, engagement. And it would have been pretty awesome for me and my career. And I really felt strongly at that time that I deserved it. Unfortunately, I, I knew I was very young, like for that gig. And I was also a woman in a space, not legally necessarily, but in crypto, like there aren't a lot of women in crypto. And so I knew that the odds were against me, but I felt like I deserved it. And I worked my ass off to pitch that case. And I really believed I deserved it, but I didn't get it. And I felt like, you know what? I don't want to do this like anymore. I don't want to fight this freaking hard for what I deserve, what I believe I deserve. There's this other opportunity out there that quite frankly is more fun, more creatively fulfilling and allows me to be an advocate on the issues I actually care about. So I think in many ways that rejection was kind of like, all right, fine. You don't want me? Well, they really want me. So I'm going to go over there. And that's exactly what happened. Now you have like a ton of time and energy, right? <laughs> like like if, if you're just focused on one thing, um, I can't imagine how many ideas were like running through your head or, or just like, like also if you were, if you were achieving to this level, kind of with half of your time or less than half of your time, what were you able to do when it was just your pure focus? I think that what ends up happening for people like me is they find whatever they need to in order to fill all that time. I was just telling someone the other day, I feel busier now than I ever have in my legal practice. Because now instead of having someone fill my plate, I fill my own plate. And when I get to be the author of that, I mean, you can only imagine all the different verticals that I have going up. I'm also a lawyer. I'm risk averse. I still, you know, am of counsel at Foley. And on top of that, because I am risk averse and because I come from a background that is all about shoring up people's businesses, I understand the very critical importance of diversifying your brand. So I'm never going to be that person who's like, I'm just going to spend 12 hours a day creating TikToks. Like that's not me. I, I segment a good chunk of my time to creating content, but I'm also now working on a podcast that takes up actually most of my time. Now I have a second book that I'm writing. I'm also thinking of, you know, starting a franchise or a chain restaurant with the Korean vegan. I mean, there's so many things that because because, like you said, I have so much time now and I can devote 100% of that to creating things. And the lawyer in me doesn't want to rest on her laurels and just say, I'm going to do one thing. I want to do a lot of different things to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success and I'm optimizing strategically sound opportunities that make sense to invest in at that at this time. So I'm very, very, very busy. I'm doing a lot of different things, but I am more fulfilled in what I'm doing right now than I ever was in the 17 years I was a full-time lawyer. Yeah. So, I mean, you have now like 670,000 followers on Instagram, like almost a million on YouTube, 3 million on TikTok. You've amassed this massive audience. Um, what are you most excited for for the future now? 
I think there are a couple of things kind of at surface level. I, I mean, surface level is a bad way of describing it, but, you know, kind of immediately that jumps out to people when kind of looking from the outside in. And, and that, of course, would be book number two. I'm really excited about that. I've you know been writing it and my writing has gotten so much better because of my podcast. I write every single podcast pretty much from the beginning to the end. And that means about 10 to 12 hours of writing every single week. And it's something that I'm so proud of because like everything else in my life, it happened by accident. It wasn't like, I'm going to start a podcast. It was more just like, oh, I have this newsletter and I have to proofread it and I read out loud to proofread. Well, maybe I should tape myself reading out loud one day, you know? And that's how the podcast was started. It's really actually embarrassing. Like my very first TikTok, my first podcast episode is horrible. It's literally just me reading out loud. <laughs> it makes no sense. But you know, now it's something that is really beautiful. I was just talking to my agent and he was like, it's phenomenal. He's like, there's really nothing like it. And he's, you know, a big supporter, but to hear that from him meant quite a lot. So those are the two things that I'm very excited about. But I think, you know, to your question, Sam, your questions are always so good. I'm very excited about the woman I'm going to be as a result of the challenges that I bring to myself. I think that for the first half of my life, including with that first marriage, I was always just accepting whatever was happening to me. I was so passive. And I think in this second chapter of my life, I want to be the person taking things. I want to be the person choosing things. I'm very excited about who I will ultimately become as a result of taking that sort of agency back. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Haglin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.